This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we've got Teo Nikolai. Teo Nikolai is a super impressive guy. He's an instructor at Harvard, Harvard graduate. Uh, but more importantly for us, he has years and years of experience in the real estate industry. Absolutely. He was the director of finance and acquisitions for a real estate company in Illinois with over $500 million in holdings. Uh, he's also the president and founder of Nikolai LLC, which is a real estate investment company in, I believe, Denver, Colorado. Yeah, he's out of Colorado. And the reason we had him on is he wrote an article uh, for the Harvard Extension School detailing right. market cycles, what to look for. And how to judge where you are in a real estate market cycle. And it's a super sophisticated analytical tool. And it's a super sophisticated analysis. So we we asked Teo to come on the show. And he... Uh he was generous enough to do so. No, and you know what? It's one of the clearest outlines of how real estate market cycles work because we constantly are talking to people that you know say, oh, it's a five-year cycle or, yeah. oh, it's a seven-year cycle, but they don't really back it up as to why they think it's a cycle. It's almost like it's just the duration of the cycle regardless of any changes in the in what's going on in the market or any other external Globally, factors. Globally, uh, yeah. interest rates. Uh, <laughs> no, next year, the cycle's going to, you know, next year is going to be the bad year. Yeah. And it, it, I don't find that a useful framework. Well, it's not compelling at all. Oh, but, exactly. But this, on the other hand, um, is a very useful four-stage 
uh, analysis. Yep. The question always is is that it's very difficult to determine exactly where you are, but uh, this is this is a useful tool. When you're looking at it, though, you you recognize things that are are playing out in the Vancouver market, right? Sure. When you talk to when we talk to Teo, you'll you'll definitely uh, think of. Think of certain things in our marketplace yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, but before we get to that, Matt, the stats are not out yet today. We got the board stats coming out probably uh, tomorrow, I think, or maybe this, maybe this like, week. Maybe even later today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll have the real estate board stats. They'll be up on our site. We also have uh, the other real estate stats that we talked about last week that outline sales ratios and really break down what's happening in sub areas. Sub areas and sales ratios are the most important thing that you should be looking at. I mean, sales ratios are really interesting. What's happening in the market really on the ground level and what kind of, you know, what, what's selling, right? Exactly. I mean, if you have 100 listings on the market, are 10 of them selling? Are we in a buyer's market? Are we in a seller's market? And it's really nice. They actually break them down by price band. They break, break them down by area. Um, it's fan, it's fantastic and, stuff. And we can't put those on the site, but we do release those in our newsletters. So go over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com and sign up for that. And we'll have that out in this week's newsletter. Speaking of the market though, Matt, what, uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, generally speaking, we are in a market still where, you know, detached is pretty soft. The high end of the market is pretty soft. But we've we have been noticing, you know, we've had the last year or so of of it's been the tail of two markets, right? Right, a robust attached market, right? And exactly. that, that there's subtle shifts right now where it seems to be changing a little bit. And obviously, we've talked uh, quite a bit about all the governmental actions and the interest rate hikes right. and the stress tests and everything else that uh, are going to potentially impact this market. And it and it seems to be impacting it ever so slightly right now. Absolutely, and it's it's really tough to get a solid read on it because it's just been. I mean, we're coming off of Easter weekend. Yeah, which is always soft and slow, and you know people are away and everything else. Um, so it's 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 not it's difficult to get a really strong read. I feel like the inventory is going to be coming actually this week and next. A lot of people kind of start picking up for the spring market after Easter. Exactly, but and I think you know we talked to tons of realtors. We're doing open houses every weekend. Everyone's saying, yeah, it's a strange market right now. Uh, it's hard to figure out why certain things are selling and certain things aren't. Right. Uh, but we've talked about uh, a way that we think about uh, how the market's working before using this tier one, tier two system. So what exactly is a tier two property then? So a tier two property is a property that doesn't have parking uh, has a, a view maybe looking into a bridge dumpster. or a dumpster or a hydro substation, right. you know, a negative view, um, outdoor space. Maybe it's lacking outdoor space. Maybe it has a wonky floor plan. Maybe it's on the busy side, uh, loud side of the building. There's some negative attributes. And in a busy market, those attributes go overlooked because people are are desperate to get in. You know, there's multiple offers on everything. Right. Uh, the fear of missing out, all all of those things, right? Um, and what we're seeing right now is that some of those tier two properties are sitting while all the tier ones are still selling. So you'll talk to agents where they're like, "I don't understand. Uh, your your uh, listing got seven offers and mine got skunked on the weekend. Yeah, seven and zero. What's the story? And this tier one, tier two. 
uh, framework is, I think, a really useful way of thinking about it. Yeah, interesting. And so just to, and, and I know people can probably put it together, but tier one properties alternatively are everything that's not a tier two, right? I mean, they've got the fantastic view or the better exposure. Yeah. They're on the quiet side of the building or just a quiet street in general. Um, maybe they have parking, maybe they're in a great building, maybe they have a large outdoor space. These are the types of properties when you're, when you're considering the attributes of a, of a unit for purchase or a house for purchase, these are the things you really want to consider because you'll be much stronger positioned in any market, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we should say, obviously, this suggests that uh, the market in the it, the attached uh, market is actually softening, right? Because those tier two properties last year were going like gangbusters. This spring, uh, we're seeing more sitting on the market. So. so it's a question of fewer buyers out or maybe a little bit more inventory kind of coming to market in certain areas and really price sensitive, right? It seems sure. like, uh, it seems like it, it's really dependent on the price band. And that's actually, again, why you need those uh, stats that we put out. So you can actually look and see where your property is where it's positioned within certain price bands and how many homes are selling in any given month based on the inventory, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, Yeah, so quickly, uh, Matt, before we get to that, we'll mention one more thing. If you are actually thinking of selling your house, uh, we've also got a research tool so you can monitor how to how to basically monitor what your home's worth. We've talked about the uh, the the tools out there where you just go to the site and it says how much is my home worth and you plug it in and it it takes like four random comparables from the area. Well, yeah, not very useful. Not very useful. It also it also takes you know how large is your house after you put in the address. You have to say how many bedrooms, how how the square right. footage. I mean, clearly um, it's. It's a, a system that needs some work. I think they're putting this all on a computer is, is not a super useful way of, of gauging what your home's worth. No, there's too many subjective factors. So um, we actually have something that's way more useful than that. So let us know if you want to sign up for your home for this, and it will actually update you with sales immediately around your area. And then there, there is some legwork on your behalf. Um, or on our behalf, depending if you want to engage us to help you out with that. But let us know. Sign up at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com and leave a leave your uh, home address in the comments. Absolutely. But uh, maybe we should cut to this talk with Teo Nikolai because this is a this is a good one. This is a fantastic one. Without further ado, here's our interview with Teo Nikolai. Enjoy. Okay, so we're here with Teo Nikolai, Harvard instructor and real estate investor. How are you doing, Teo? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? Fantastic. Yeah, thanks for taking the time, Teo. So, so Teo, can you maybe start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I, I teach real estate finance and investment at Harvard Extension School. And it's our, our program is online. It's open enrollment. So we get a lot of people who join to learn about real estate and uh, we even offer real estate investment certificates. So I get to interact with a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of investors around the world who are involved in real estate. And uh, that's, that's a great pleasure for me. I also, of course, real, invest in real estate on my own. I'm the president of Nikolai LLC, and we invest in apartments, and we're also active in fix and flips. And, and how long have you been uh, investing in real estate? I've been investing in real estate since 2004. So it's been I've uh, been through through one cycle and and uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing how this next cycle develops. Hmm. Right. And so uh Tail, 
we brought you on because we, we know you, you, you think about uh, real estate in a really deep way. What, what fundamentally drives home prices? That's an excellent question, and it's one that surprisingly is misunderstood around the world. So to really understand what fundamentally drives prices, and particularly home prices, we have to go way back. There is an economist named David Ricardo back in 1817, and he introduced what we now know is Ricardo's Law of Rents. So without going into all the details, what David Ricardo noticed was after the Napoleonic Wars, the price of corn skyrocketed throughout Europe and, and, uh, and, and England. And people noticed at the same time that land rent had also been skyrocketing. And so people came to the conclusion, the very common sense conclusion, that the price of corn had been going up because so much rent was being paid. And everyone listening to this, and we've all been through this, we've all heard the phrase, uh, you know, we have to raise prices because our rents are going up. What David Ricardo realized was that it works in exactly the opposite way. He found out that the price of corn was not high because rents were being charged, but rather rents went up because the price of corn was up. And that applies in every aspect of real estate. That is to say that operators, our users of land, realize some benefit from using that land. A, a, a store owner will operate in a, at a particular location because they expect to make a profit, or someone will live in a particular city because they enjoy living there, and that is what bids the price up. There was a, a Harvard professor named Edward Glazer who wrote a fantastic book about this. It's called Triumph of the City. And one of the things he noted, and this will be particularly relevant for Vancouver, is that lower real income, meaning uh, people are spending more, a greater portion of their income on housing, is actually a sign of a thriving city, not a city that's in trouble. And uh, let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, if you look at, at prices, and we know that, that home prices in Vancouver are, are, are very high. We're at, at uh, just about $1.7 million right now on average. Um, I did some research online, everyone can, can look this up, and find that uh, you can, if you, if you don't want to pay $1.7 million, you have a lot of options. If you want to move to Yellowknife, you can get a home for about $460,000, right? Thunder Bay is even cheaper. So the question is, is, you know, has everyone in Vancouver lost their minds? Why are people in Vancouver paying four times as much as they could pay to instead live in Yellowknife? Well, what we know is people in Vancouver are not being irrational. What's happening is there is a really good, compelling reason to live in Vancouver. Uh, Vancouver has one of the lowest, or British Columbia in general, has one of the lowest unemployment rates in Canada. You're at 4.6%. Uh, employment growth went up by 3.4% last year. Um, and, and that's what that speaks to is that there are opportunities in Vancouver. In addition to the job market, of course, people just love living in Vancouver. So, uh, the, uh, you know, you've got Stanley Park, you've got a great aquarium, you've got a great out outdoor uh, recreation setup. And so people are flocking to Vancouver for the lifestyle and the jobs, and therefore they're willing to pay there, to pay, to pay to be there. You could live in Yellowknife for a quarter of the price, but you wouldn't have access to all the amenities and all the jobs and all the reasons why people want to live in Vancouver. And so consequently, from a fundamental standpoint, what really drives prices, home prices and, and real estate prices, is the desirability of that area. The more desirable the area, the more people are willing to pay to be there. And Vancouver, so Vancouver, in a sense, is, is a victim of its own success. Uh, but, but no one would be paying these high prices if they didn't want to be there. Right. 
So, and what would you say, I mean, there's a lot of people here that look at, say, the price-to-income ratios, and they say Vancouver's way out of whack as compared to almost any city in North America. Um, this fundamentally speaks to to a problem with the market or a distortion in this market. Sure, and and that's certainly the the price to income ratio is is a is a is a great metric for looking at to understand the overall affordability of the city. But the key thing to think about in prices, and we study study a lot of this in economics, is that people pay price they pay a price in exchange for getting something. Mm-hmm. So when you're renting uh, an apartment or when you're buying a home, you're not just buying the the the, the sink and the refrigerator and the and the three bedrooms or the two bedrooms or the one bedroom as the case may be, you're buying all of that and access to the locale. So there's an amenity that's happening. When you live in Vancouver, you have access to all of these things which you wouldn't get if you lived in, again, Yellowknife. And I, I don't mean to get any hate mail from Yellowknife, but uh, <laughs> I can see that coming. But, um, but the bottom line is, is that you're getting a package deal. You're buying the home and you're buying everything around the home. And so consequently, there, there's value to that, uh, and there's and you can monetize that, and that's what we see. We see people paying more of their income to live in Vancouver, and we see this in Seattle, in the United States, we see this in Seattle, and San Francisco, and even Denver, and people are paying more and more of their income, but the reason they're paying it is because they're getting a lot more. It is, and again, I, without getting hate mail from, from Yellowknife, I, I think it's more enjoyable in terms of amenities, uh, when you buy a one-bedroom condo in Vancouver than a one-bedroom condo in Yellowknife, you get more for what you're paying, and mm-hmm. people are willing to pay more because they're getting so much more. Right, right. So, uh, Teo, you wrote a piece called How to Use Real Estate Trends to Predict the Next Housing Bubble. Um, you point to a cycle in which real estate markets inescap- inescapably move. Can you detail this cycle in the four stages for our listeners? Sure, absolutely. So uh, real estate is absolutely fascinating in the sense that it really does move through a very predictable four-stage cycle. And what's even more interesting about that is that the cycle tends to be about 18 years, and it can vary, but by and large, over since the 1800s, we've been monitoring this, and it, it is consistently around an 18-year cycle. So the, the cycle starts out, and, and the, the, the way to measure the cycle is looking at occupancy. Uh, what we know is, uh, just, just very briefly before we get into the, the actual cycle, is that people tend to think of, of prices and rents. Um, that's what we look at when we're trying to understand what's going on in our market. We ask what the rents are and what the prices are. But prices and rents are byproducts of something else that's happening. They're, they're the effect, but not the cause. What the, the cause of the real estate cycle and, and what drives prices of, you know, from, a, from a day-to-day standpoint truly is occupancy. Um, occupancy refers to how many seats around the table currently have someone sitting in them, uh, how many seats are empty. And for people wanting to understand the real estate cycle, you want to look at, at really occupancy or its, its, its counterpoint, which is vacancy. And those statistics are largely available, and they will tell you more about the real estate cycle than any other statistic that's out there. So in terms of that real estate cycle, again, there are, there are four phases. The first stage phase of the real estate cycle is is the uh, recovery phase. It's basically coming out of a recession. And we all remember what a recession feels like. You've got high unemployment. You've got a lot of storefronts that are vacant. You've got a lot of apartments that are vacant, a lot of homes that are for sale and there aren't buyers. The, it, and that's, that is the result of, of low economic activity. 
Land is essential to every economic activity. And so consequently, if we're in a situation where there's lower economic activity, there's lower demand for land, there are more available units. Occupancy is low. Uh, the number of, again, vacancy is high and, and the, uh, the number of, of homes for sale would be, would be higher. We see in a recession that governments tend to step in. They tend to uh, undertake stimulus, um, and there's just natural growth of population. And consequently, we start to see that, that economic activity start to arrive. We start to see occupancy increase. So more people are, more, more businesses are opening new stores. We see that uh, people are, are, that used to be four to a household, now it's two to a household. So that occupancy starts to increase. And that's uh, the phase one of, of the real estate cycle recovery is a time when occupancy, current occupancy, is below long-run average, but it's creeping up. Mm-hmm. At that time, there's still downward pressure on rents. Uh, and that is to say we have a lot of available units. We've got a lot of homes for sale. We've got a lot of apartments for rent. We've got a lot of storefronts that are vacant. And so that generally puts downward pressure on, on rents and, and prices. Where that starts to change is at the transition between phase one and phase two. In phase two, we call that the expansion phase. Phase two is just like phase one. It's the, the recovery is coming. There's more economic activity going on. And occupancy has been increasing, which is great. And now, unfortunately, we experience scarcity. Suddenly, there are, there are very few apartments that are available, very few apart, uh, condos and homes that are available for sale, very few storefronts that are available. And now we see upward pressure on rents. We see people who want to rent those places. They want to live in the city, but they can't find anywhere to rent, and so they're bidding up the price. So phase two, we see occupancy increasing. We see a lot of good economic activity, but now we start to see prices going up. And the thing about real estate, which everyone knows, is that uh, real estate works just like any other market. Uh, If prices go up, you start to see new supply. But where real estate is very different from other markets is in the, the lag time between when uh, when the, the demand for new units is felt and when those new units are actually supplied. Right. So phase two, during that expansion phase, things are going great, but we're not seeing any new supply yet. We're uh, the early stages new of, uh, of that, that period. We're not seeing new supply because it takes a really long time to build. So that, that, that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we've been experiencing that here in Vancouver for quite some time. I mean, the city's very slow at, at um, uh, allowing builders and developers for permits. It, it takes forever. So, um, yeah, we, we've it seen does. that. Yeah. yeah to, to build a, you know, a 200-unit condo tower, you're talking about, I mean, you, you, you're talking about a, a, a period of, of usually four to six years Right. But from when the time the developer says, let's pull the trigger on this, to the time they get all the permits, they secure the land, they get the financing, then they start the construction, then they finish the construction, and then, and then there's, a, there's a whole sales period. And so consequently, what happens is we start to see a lot of construction in phase two, that expansion phase. But we're only starting to see a little bit of deliveries. Um, and what's happening, of course, is the economy is recovering and people are being born and people are moving to the city. And so they're pushing up those rents but there are no new units available for them to occupy. And that, that, that competition for space pushes prices up further and further. As prices go up further and further, developers start to say, hey, we should, we should start developing, we should start building new. So they begin new projects, but again, it can take a long time. It can take three, four, five, six years before a meaningful amount of supply is, uh, is delivered. And throughout that entire period, 
the economic expansion continues, prices keep push, getting pushed up, and then people start to panic because occupancy is really, really high. There's no available inventory. And despite the fact that we all see cranes in the skyline, we're not seeing those new units yet. Mm-hmm. Those units start to get delivered in the end of the, of the expansion phase. And, and, that, and that starts to, to slowly quench the thirst for new inventory, for, for spaces for people to rent and, and for homes for people to buy. And that starts to, to quench that thirst, which is great for the market. And that starts to decrease that pressure on occupancy. Occupancy starts to slow down as new units are developed. And then finally it peaks because the amount of new units that are coming online start to match the demand for those units. And that brings us into phase three. Phase three of the real estate cycle is hypersupply. What we're referring to, and you can imagine where we are in this market, is we still have very high occupancy. So we still have upward pressure on rents. We still have upward pressure on prices. We have a lot of people trying to find space that can't. But now the delivery of new units is on our side. So a lot of new units start, those units that we started uh, seeing the delivery of them in phase two are now being delivered. A lot more of them are coming online. The construction engine is in full gear and is delivering a massive amount of all those units that have been under construction for the last five years or so. And that starts pushing occupancy down. So the difference between phase two and phase three is that uh, in, in both cases, upward pressure on rents, but now in phase three, hypersupply, the magnitude of supply that's coming online is starting to push that occupancy down. So it's a lot of new units coming online, and, and, and suddenly uh, we're starting to see occupancy fall. Now, it's important to remember that the way this works is that whenever current occupancy is above long-run average occupancy, you're still going to have upward pressure on rents. There still aren't enough seats to go around. There's still uh, intense bidding for those seats. And so phase, phase three is the weirdest phase to be in. The hypersupply phase is, is like a weird nightmare for real estate investors. And the reason I say that is because the rents are going up, but occupancy is starting to go down. And, and you can start to see that this massive wave of new supply is coming into existence and dumping onto the market. And that's pushing occupancy down at a time when, paradoxically, rents are still rising. They're rising because scarcity still exists, even though new supply is being delivered. That phase comes to an end, as you can probably imagine, uh, and introduces us into phase four, which is the recession. Phase four occurs, uh, the the difference between phase three and phase four is that uh, in both cases, occupancy is decreasing. It's decreasing because a lot of new supply is coming online. But the difference and the turning point is that when current occupancy falls below long run average, that's when we're in phase four, the recession. And what has happened is that, that that gigantic construction engine has been just churning out units, units that have been in the pipeline for five or six or seven years, and they start getting delivered, pushes down occupancy. Suddenly, the, the need for those units really isn't really isn't there anymore because the prices aren't as high as they used to be or uh, in real terms are, are kind of uh, are flattening out. But that doesn't stop the machine. We have a pipeline that has five or six or seven years worth of development that is is gearing up to deliver all of those. And that 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 punishing supply comes into the market and pushes occupancy down, pushes it below the long run average, pushes it into that recession where we have below average rent or we below average occupancy, which is driving rents down. 
And because new units are coming online, occupancy is falling as well. And so that's a scary time. That's the, that's the real nightmare in real estate because uh, there's very little, little room for uh, real estate developers to change their plan, even though the market that they were building for no longer exists. So those are the four stages of real estate, uh, the real estate cycle. Phase one, recovery. Phase two, expansion. Phase three, hypersupply. And phase four, recession. Uh, eventually, all those the developers, we go bankrupt. Uh, we stop building. That bottoms out the occupancy. Uh, that uh, that no, occupancy is no longer falling. And then suddenly, we start the cycle again. So, Teo, we, we've definitely seen that cycle play out in different cities. Are, are there cities that are exceptions to this uh, four-stage process? Um, like I'm thinking about perhaps sure. cities that might be landlocked or uh, any other sort of city that might might defy this this logic? You know, typically we don't see that. Um, what we do see is disruptions in the cycle. So the cycle I've just described is repeated in almost every major city uh, because of that delay between when the inventory is needed and when it's actually delivered. That lag um, suddenly that that may keep that that may prolong the the uh, uh, the upswing, and we also see government policies which restrict supply, also extending the uh, the, the real estate cycle. Um, and so, and that's and that's something Vancouver experiences both of those, right. which can uh, temporarily disrupt the cycle. Uh, and what I mean by that is it, it can lengthen the different terms of it. It can exacerbate the the heights, but uh, uh, but eventually you still run into the same cycle. Can you just speak a little bit more? We have a lot of investors that listen to the program about occupancy and what to look for, uh, like in terms of occupancy, in terms of of rents and and uh, sales. Like, how would you be monitoring sure. that? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so from an academic standpoint, we use occupancy because intuitively it helps us really understand. You know, higher occupancy means higher rents, so it's kind of a it, it, it's easier to understand. Um, from the publication standpoint, for those for people who are looking for the actual data, we actually flip flip that on its head. Uh, we speak in terms of vacancy and an inventory. So, if you're an investor in apartments, what you're really looking for is the vacancy rate, and you're trying to understand which way the vacancy rate is moving. Um, if vacancy rate is if the vacancy rate is going down, that means we're in phase that likely means we're in phase two at this point in in, uh, in Vancouver's uh, cycle which is to say that, that more people are moving in, there's still a demand that's not being met, and therefore vacancy is falling. Uh, the single-family home equivalent of that is there's, there's three of them. Uh, one thing they want to look at is the total inventory, how many homes are currently for sale, and is that inventory rising or is it falling? Two other metrics that people want to look at are days on market, meaning how many, how long is a, is a home for sale before it goes under contract. Right. And obviously, again, the, the faster that it goes under contract, the more that, that suggests that there's a, lot more, there's a lot more demand than there is supply. And then finally, a month of inventory, which is basically, it's, a, it's our way of saying, if no more homes went on the market today, how long would the current inventory last at the current uh, absorption rate? And the bottom line is, is that the the the, the, sh- the shorter the days, the, the the months of inventory, that means we don't have a lot of supply. And again, that that will tell you that rents or the prices should be going up at that point because there's just not enough seats at the table, and 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 you got way more people looking for the homes than uh, than there are people um, than there are homes to be purchased. So, are you using so uh, just so I understand, Teo? So you're looking at days days of on the market. You're looking at supply. 
And when, so when is a perfect time for an investor to actually try and time the buy? Sure. Well, um, I, I will say this, the, one of the, the, the things that I have learned from doing this for a very long time is that timing the market is, is extraordinarily difficult in terms of finding that perfect moment. But uh, in general, what you'd want to look for is, is a situation where you're entering that second phase. So the idea is we're coming out of a, of a recession, we're recovering from that, um, and we now are experiencing um, higher than average occupancy and then rent growth and, and, and price appreciation. So, so what I would say is the, 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 you know, if I could wave my magic wand and I could, if I could pick when I would invest, it's when we're coming out of that recovery, that first phase, sure. uh, and we're entering that second phase. Um, we, we see that that is likely past, uh, that the moment has passed for, for that um, in, uh, in Vancouver. But that being said, it's a long cycle, and, uh, and there's, 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 there's never really a bad time to be in the market. The only mistake investors make is overpaying. So that's the that's the one mistake you can't undo in real estate is overpaying, right? So, Taylor, presumably you monitor many different markets. Uh, just in terms of these cycles, and I guess you're focused primarily in the United States. But are these cycles? Is it kind of a national uh, phenomenon, or is it is it city specific? And and. Secondly, for for an investor, say in Vancouver, that's potentially looking at other markets, like these, the cycle you're describing is so long. If you feel like you're not hitting it at the right time, you potentially have another nine, ten years, or whatever, however long yeah. you think it's going to be. I mean, it, so is it, it? What is your strategy there? Sure, sure. So that so so a couple of we tend to see the cycles are are matching up, and that's that's actually very interesting for us. So we're seeing more and more. That the real estate cycles are, are it's a, we're at more or less the same point in in you know in the United States as in Canada as in and in um, in in Europe. So the idea is is that we're starting to see that that happen more and more. And there's still some some differences because there's different policies and different you know different government policies that that affect markets. But largely we see more or less uh, a, a similar cycle. That being said, there is within any given country there is a widespread of where different cities are in the cycle. And so you may have cities that are, that are well into phase three hypersupply where there's their occupancies are already on the way down. We've got a lot of inventory being delivered. Um, and in that same country, you can also have cities which are just emerging from the first phase and they're, they're just starting to experience uh, rent growth, but aren't seeing meaningful supply yet. So, um, so there is definitely a, 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 a a range of where cities will will fall, and then finally, and this is something to think about, is that product types differ in the cycle. So you can have a city wherein apartments are in hyper supply, but single family homes have not yet hit that point because the construction of single family homes takes place tends to lag behind apartment construction by about two to three to four years. Office and retail might even fall further behind. Because that again, just the nature of, of the forces that cause the scarcity, the upward pressure in rents, and then the the incentive to develop uh, are different for apartments than for office buildings. And so, even so, what the, the 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 neat trick is if you can move from product type to product type, you can move to different parts of the cycle uh, because different uh, different product types will be right. different points in their cycle. So, so Taylor, there's a lot of people that that are calling Vancouver a uh, a bubble currently. 
are there are there analytical measures that that you use to for predicting bubbles uh, you know in in several different markets across the north america call it sure sure well so in an interesting thing about bubbles uh is they they have two things that have two things have to happen in order for a bubble to to be a bubble first and foremost you have rapid increase in prices and secondly, that that rapid increase is not supported on a fundamental level. That is to say, it is an increase in price, but not of value. In Vancouver, what's interesting is is that you you've got um, by and large a very well supported market. And by with the reason again, I say that I go back to the the unemployment, uh, which is again one of the lowest in 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 Canada and certainly lowest in, in or one of the lowest in British Columbia. Uh, but uh, and you've got good rent growth or, or good employment growth rather. You had 3.4% employment growth last year, and what that means is you got more jobs, so you've got more people wanting to fill those jobs, and you probably have an, an upward pressure on, on wages. I, I say probably because it depends on, on the, the specific industry. But by and large, as long as, there's un, as long as there is employment growth, you're likely to see more migration, more people wanting to use the, to, to occupy that city, and therefore will uh, we'll come to it. So my number one thing I look at is, is the employment growth likely to continue to support in migration? If the answer is yes, then I'm not as concerned about bubbles. Where I get concerned about bubbles is when you have an increase in price that isn't well supported. There aren't a lot of there aren't people moving in. There aren't new jobs coming. So how is this how is this price level likely to continue to be supported? Um, so I will say that that by and large, the number one indicator I look for is employment growth. Because that precedes all the uh, all the other economic activities, um, the, the the curveball, of course, in Vancouver continues to be the foreign investment and how much of the price appreciation is due to foreign investment um, versus uh, which you know which which can leave very quickly versus jobs which tend not to leave quickly. Right. So, so Teo, there's a certain inevitableness to the idea of a cycle, and and it's a very attractive simplicity. What are your thoughts on why so many people have got Vancouver wrong? Um, and we've had a lot of them on the podcast. D- did all of these folks just misread where we were in the cycle, or, or are they unaware of the cycle, or is there something else going on? There's an old phrase that's out there which says that economists were put on the planet to make astrologists look good. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't surprise me that economists get it wrong. Uh, we get it wrong all the time. Um, so, so it's important to understand that just when we think we've got something, the market has a has an embarrassing way of proving us wrong. What I would say is that they're not wrong about the cycle. We're just often wrong about exactly where we are in the cycle and, and how long we're going to be in this position. The real estate cycle, that occupancy, um, the increase and decrease in occupancy and, and, and the driver of rent growth is, is largely due to new supply. And that's really, that's the, that's the 800 pound gorilla that is driving the real estate cycle. Right. But that being said, that gorilla can get, can get distracted or offset by unexpected changes in demand as well as government policies that restrict supply. So uh, again, you can imagine that, that uh, higher than expected job growth is going to lead to higher than expected in migration, which is going to lead to more demand. And, and that means that that new supply that we just watched come in gets quickly absorbed, not by the existing population, but rather because there's, there's so much new migration. Uh, similarly, we can imagine there's a lot of construction that needs to happen 
but because of certain policies, because it takes a long time for permitting um, or uh, for a variety of reasons, that that supply does not materialize. So again, what I would say is that I don't think that anyone's wrong with regard to the cycle itself, but rather there are some curveballs that can get thrown in that can prolong where we are in the cycle. So, Teo, like in 18-year timeline, to me, I'm just thinking about this right now, that makes me a bit nervous as an investor. That means that I probably have three timelines in my life to actually capitalize on. Is that is that a typical length of of a timeline, and and do you see a lot of deviation in that time frame? It, it is typical, and the the in the this is one of the great things Adam's about not, real estate. Doesn't plan is, to is live till sixty. It sounds like, but anyway, <laughs> well, I won't be operating. Well, you know, the, what what they say is is that you know it really is is a in, in a career a typical real estate career might be two years or three years if we're or three cycles if we're if we're lucky um the first cycle is to basically have the universe uh, uh beat into investors um the the nature of the real estate cycle the the second cycle is where investors tend to make money because they realize they know what's coming they've seen it before they know when that they know not to overly despair uh, during the downtimes, and they know to be cautious during the good times. And so th- both of those things, the market has a great way of educating us. We, it can be, we, I, I call it tu- uh, tuition uh, when, we, when we lose a bunch of money in the market. Uh, that's just tuition. That's the market, that's the market teaching you uh, what you need to be prepared for the next time around. Um, so, uh, so yeah, the uh, you, real estate careers are, 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 are made and experienced typically in, in two to three cycles. And and what metrics do you use to predict the severity of a downturn? The severity of the downturn can be predicted with two major indicators. The first is employment, and the second is supply. So to the extent that you have way more supply than is needed, that will certainly lead to much more um, a much deeper downturn. Because again, that new supply generally doesn't get delivered until halfway through the, the hypersupply phase or into recession. So we could be experiencing a devastating real estate recession and still have new units being delivered. It's not that those developers were crazy. They just started building the late in the cycle, and, uh, and they, but the market that they built for no longer exists. Right. The second thing is, is, on, is, is employment. They're, they're played. And the reason I say it's overplayed, again, is to go back to the, the Yellowknife-Vancouver comparison. You can get a wonderful three-bedroom home in, in Yellowknife for about three hundred or about four hundred sixty thousand dollars, but you don't get everything else that you get when you buy in Vancouver. And so, consequently, uh, people's decision to spend a lot of their income uh, on housing really is a decision to spend a lot of their income on the house and everything around the house that they value. Right. We we had a, a guest a long time ago, but it's something that stuck with both Adam and I. Say the most important square footage is outside of your home here in Vancouver. Yeah, oh, I I I could not agree more. I think that's you know the I, again, uh, you know, Yellowknife. I'm sure has a lot going for it, but it doesn't have Stanley Park, and mm. you know it does it does it doesn't have the the, the vibrant uh, nightlife, and that's something that a lot of people like and are willing to pay for, and they pay for it not separately but combined with their home price. It's, it's a package deal when you buy a home. Mm-hmm. So how's the market in the U.S., Teo? And where are you seeing opportunities right now for investors? The market in the United States is, is in for large cities, are, are very similar to what you're seeing in Vancouver, which is to say we are, we are well into 
the expansion phase, if not into the hyper supply phase. Uh, we are with the, the, the U.S. Uh, obviously, like everywhere else in the world, was hit by the, the, the housing led uh, financial crisis in 2008. Uh, but, but the recovery actually happened pretty quickly. And we're seeing now uh, in a shortage of labor and materials to build all the new space that, uh, that people are demanding, both for homes as well as for businesses. Um, so, you know, but the, the bottom line is we're, we're, we're in it right now. We're, we're very optimistic about, about the, the current market. We're very cautious about what's going to happen in about 18 months to two years from now. Um, that's, that is about as far as, as, as I would predict. Uh, and again, it's th- thinking about the comparison between economists and astrologists. Uh, I'm about 18, 18 months to two years out in terms of my confidence of where we are in the market. I'll continue to watch employment. I'll continue to watch deliveries of new supply, and I'll continue to watch the number of units under construction. And if I start to see those uh, start to be too overwhelmingly out of balance, then I'll start to be very worried about where we are. And is there a certain market that you're most excited about right now? Well, I'm excited about Denver. I'm, I, I love Denver's market. It is, uh, for, for me, uh, I grew up in Denver, so it's wonderful to see this uh, our, our market develop. Uh, Colorado has one of the highest education levels in the country, so we see a lot of headquarters moving to Denver. And not too dissimilar for Vancouver, we have a lot of millennials moving here because they love the area. They love the, 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 the lifestyle that you can enjoy in this city. You're seeing that in a lot of different cities, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland. We're seeing millennials who are have a preference for the present and who are looking for the lifestyle that they can enjoy and they seek cities where they can find it. Right. And so my, what I look for is I look for cities where millennials are flocking to uh, because that indicates that high quality of life and suggests that people will, will want to stay. Even if they lose their job, they'll likely stay in the city because they came not just for a job, but for their entire lifestyle. And those, that's, those are the cities that we're likely to see stability going forward. Fascinating. Yeah, definitely. So, so Teo, just before we, uh, we wrap it up here, we know you're a, a successful real estate investor, but we're most interested in your mistakes. Uh, what are some of the biggest mistakes you've made along the way? Sure. There, uh, <laughs> there, we, we don't have another hour or so, although I think it's starting to touch the surface on that. Um, you know, the, the, the biggest, the, the two biggest mistakes that I would say that I have, have made um, is first and foremost is keeping your eye truly on the real estate cycle because there's a time to get in and 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 stay in and uh, and that's that's something that you have to be watching the market carefully for you have to be checking in on a Monday Williams quarterly basis to watch where the market is uh, there was a lot of hesitancy coming out of the recession and I was I was also one of those people that were very hesitant you know we live and learn uh, the other key thing that I suggest to to every investor is keep an eye on cash flow. The real estate cycle is going to happen. There's going to be good times. There are going to be bad times. And you can survive the bad times as long as your property is cash flowing. Uh, That's one of the challenges we have to be aware of in Vancouver is rental growth rates are uh, on on a return basis are not much more than interest rates. And, and once you deduct all of your expenses, and, you know, the challenge is with interest rates going up and potentially rents having some, some downward pressure and certainly occupancies going up, you could quickly find yourself in a situation where the money coming in 
is not enough to pay for the money that's going out. And that's what causes bankruptcies in, in real estate. So my number one advice for people is, is to watch for cash flow. If you've got a cash flowing asset, you can survive a deep recession. But if your asset is not cash flowing, if you haven't positioned yourself to be able to, to, to survive for the long term, um, that's, when, that's when unfortunately you experience uh, people uh, uh, exiting the market and, and losing the property. Very sound advice. So, so Teo, how can people find out more about your research and, and what you do? Oh, sure. Well, the, they, can, uh, they can look me up, uh, uh, Teo Nikolai. Uh, they can also check out Harvard Extension School. We have a phenomenal real estate program. Again, it's, it's online. It's, uh, it's open enrollment. So anyone who's interested in learning more about real estate or even participating in our, in our real estate investment certificate series, uh, that's open to everyone. And we welcome, we, we welcome everyone to join us because uh, real estate is a fascinating field. It's a lifelong exploration. And for me, I, I can't imagine a better field to be in. Yeah. Excellent. Well, this is the closest Matt and I have ever got to going to Harvard, so uh, we really appreciate your time. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you guys having me, and uh, and I, I'm I'm continuing to look forward to uh, to seeing what you guys do in, in Vancouver and, and tracking that market. It's one of the most exciting ones uh, that that we uh, that we have our eye on. So I, I'm eager to see how it goes. Fantastic. Right Thanks again for your time, Taylor. That was the fascinating discussion. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Teo Nikolai, founder and president of Nikolai LLC and Harvard instructor. Wow, Matt, that was a really impressive conversation with Teo. And uh, congratulations, everyone, because you basically just went to Harvard. How you like them apples? Okay. <laughs> You're going to have to stop making that joke. Wicked smart over here. Yeah. <laughs> But you know what? It's uh, it's it's a lot to unpack, and it it's uh, it's it's uh, we're gonna have a, a a breakdown of his theories and ideas on our website. So uh, yeah, absolutely, we're gonna summarize it over there because yeah, we we understand it is definitely a lot to unpack. You had problems unpacking it, man? I did, I did for sure. It was uh, it was a lot of information to digest. Um, but it, yeah, it's not your fault. Yeah, I know. No, Matt, look at me, son. It's uh, it's not your fault. <laughs> So what else do we got today? We've got uh, private client services. If you're not using private client services, you're standing still while the rest of us are power walking by. It's got listing updates 36 to 72 hours before public MLS. It's also got sold prices, full realtor level information, days days on market. market. It is phenomenal. Go over there. It's the best research tool. We've gotten the best feedback about this research tool. Absolutely. And uh, so many people are using it and so many people are really thriving with it. So head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com and sign up today. Absolutely. We also have a mobile app. So when you click research tools, there's two buttons there, PCS and the mobile app. The mobile app is for those of you who like looking at real estate on the go. Right. Who doesn't like looking at real estate on the go? Sitting on a park bench, riding the sky train. Driving your car. Waiting for an appointment, not driving your car. <laughs> uh, but it's going to show you everything on the market, sold prices, has augmented reality. You're walking right. by a, a beautiful building in Yaletown. Hey, is there are there listings in there? You point your phone in it. It gives you the three listings that exist. Yeah. Prices, all the information. It's fantastic. Yeah. Sign up for that. It's the Under future. research tools at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Definitely. And while you're there, you might as well just sign up for our newsletter because it is 
the best thing out there. That's a value add for sure. It's got investment tips. You get updates of all the episodes. We give more information about the episodes. We give deal of the month. Deal of the month. We're also uh, including those stats now. Sales ratios, neighborhood breakdowns, breakdowns on price bands. If you want to know exactly what's happening in a sub area of the market, the real estate board stats are great, but they're broad. We are. This this is is next level in terms of getting down and uh, and dirty with uh, those stats. Quit saying down and dirty with stats. (laughs) It's uh, it's uncomfortable. Um, But yeah, sign up. It's it's amazing. It's the best research. uh, It's the best research information out there. Basically, for sure. Yeah. If you're data driven, which we are, you'll wanna you'll wanna be on that list. And uh, if you have any questions at all, give me a shout. I'm always available. Seven seven eight eight four seven two eight five four or Matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com or if you want to get down and dirty it's 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com with stats with stats man yeah exactly we also have the nonpartisan line info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com excellent well have a great week guys and we'll see you next wednesday take care my boy's wicked smart Thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join. 
type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakwind, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakwind.com slash join typing in VRP 2020. <laughs>